The following is one of a series of conversations that I'm having with my friend, the Reverend Ben Miller. Ben is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church on Long Island, and he suggested in the context of current divisions within the church over political and other issues that we have a wide-ranging series of conversations about issues of Christian ethical reflection, epistemology, charity, obedience, trust, community and conscience in this context. While our conversations are occasioned by issues such as COVID, on which Ben and I have different opinions, our conversations will not be narrowly about it, but will be a broader exploration of issues of Christian faithfulness in any sort of crisis, some of the principles that should guide us, and some of the practices and virtues that we need to pursue. Through our conversations, we're hoping to arrive at more accurate and charitable understandings of each other, a better grasp of responsible processes of Christian reasoning and deliberation, and a clearer apprehension of principles that we hold in common. We invite you to join us for these conversations, to listen to our discussions, and then to share your own thoughts in the comments and elsewhere. Thank you very much for your time and attention. So, Alistair, last time we were talking about how trust and narratives that either reinforce or erode trust, how that plays into questions of submitting to ruling authorities if we don't trust, if we believe that, let's say, a particular um, political system has been captured by forces of evil in in so many words, uh, how does that make it how does that change the dynamics of submission and, of course, of resistance, how distrust can, can lead to uh, distorted forms of resistance, even as uh, you know, improper trust can lead to distorted forms of submission. So I think the topic now that we can take up, having explored some of that background territory, is just what, in general at least, does principled, uh, faithful resistance to authorities look like? Is there even such a thing? Um, I I think it's very easy to have pictures of what that might look like immediately jump to mind, but maybe we could just explore something of the the mentality uh, with which we should approach um, taking a stand in opposition to things that are said or done by knowledge authorities or political authorities. And, and perhaps even get into some practical strategies uh, for even our own situation, which is ongoing with the uh, lots of lots of global goings on in the last couple of years, and, and many of them continue. Yes, I think I've found it helpful to start off with some of the, the boundaries that we have within the yes. practice of um, submission to authorities and to recognize that even in our process of resistance, that doesn't absolve us from the need to show some measure of submission to lawful Mm -hmm. authority. And so, for instance, you can imagine a situation when your child recognises that you've told them to do something that's not good, or a situation when you're just being a a bad parent, Mm -hmm. and how they can respond to that without just dismissing parental authority altogether. There are ways in which you can imagine... um, an interaction between a child and a parent that responds to some sort of parental injustice that is submissive and another way that is fairly clearly rebellious and Mm -hmm. represents a dismissal of lawful, divine lawful authority. Mm 
And so that's the sort of thing that we're looking for, I think, in relationship to government. And so, for instance, thinking about some of the boundaries here, I find it helpful to take a statement like the um, Westminster Larger Catechism's statement about the, the fifth commandment. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. Now, that's a very broad statement. And mm. clearly we believe there are cases where there needs to be some sort of resistance or um, there needs to be opposition to unlawful commands. But trying to think about how that could occur within uh, uh, an approach towards government and authority that is positive, that recognizes that authority has been instituted by God, I think that is where I would see the challenge. And I think this is an area also where we need to recognize in different cultures and societies, we have different and in different positions in society, we have different degrees to which we can respond and different degrees to which we have power to respond. Your um, two-year-old two has a very different relationship with parental authority mm. than your 17-year-old. Mm. And that dynamic in both cases is one in which there is a there should be a recognition of proper parental authority, but they have a different degree to which they can stand over against that authority and reason with it. Mm -hmm. And so ideally what we're trying to explore is a way to increase our agency over against um, bad exercises of authority and bad authorities um, without thereby just dismissing the structure of authority. Yes. So I wonder if it might be important early on to ask the question, whom are we resisting? And this might be a place where perhaps your context in the UK and mine here in the US might, might be, the, 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 the narrative dynamics might be different. Because what, getting back to our last conversation, one of the things that I think I've seen in North American evangelical political advocacy, at least in my lifetime, has been that there's been a feeling, I think this is rooted in the Cold War. I think it's, it's rooted in a, a deep fear of communism that goes way back in our American story in the last century that sees, that sees ideological forces that hate Christ and hate America and the deep principles of liberty and justice for which we stand, sees these kind of pervading society and capturing institutions and ultimately capturing political power, uh, power structures. And so sometimes if you were to ask an American evangelical, what is it that needs to be resisted? They would not necessarily say it's the American government, let's say. They would say it's the forces, it's almost like they see an occupation force that needs to be resisted, almost as if there's a gov there's sort of this shadow thing that is taking over 
our existing social forms and government structures. And obviously along with that, our educational institutions and our media institutions and so on and so on. And of course that has been enormously complicated by the sexual revolution and the kinds of various kinds of ideologies that have come from that. And so there, I think there's often a sense that it's one thing to speak about how you might resist a legitimate authority who's just doing some really unhelpful, oppressive, unjust things. Some monarch, let's say, who is not treating his people well. But it would be quite a different conversation if you realize that monarch was actually a puppet in the hands of foreign powers. How then might resistance change? And so I bring this up again, just to point out again, how the narrative, I think, immediately starts shaping the conversation about resistance. Because it seems like what you've just described, which I absolutely agree with, fits more naturally in the minds of many people in a situation where you are dealing with your authority, an authority that is actually legitimately lawfully yours, versus a situation, again, I'm just talking about the narrative here, I'm not saying I agree with this, but a situation where um, behind the existing, say, American political rulers, there's all this other stuff to which the only appropriate response can be war. Because that was the that was the evangelical reaction, let's say, to communism in the 20th century was these are our enemies. They are the enemies of God and the enemies of our country. So I, I I'm sorry I keep coming back to these narratives. I just don't know how to get around them here in the States because they're they're very much afoot. And it's certainly not something that's solely on the, the right. And it's you'll right. find the same generalized yep. narratives of distrust and delegitimization in white supremacy or in the corporate powers that control society or the various narratives that you have on um, other narratives that you have on the left mm -hmm. um, about the powers that be the establishment, the man. Um, there's this sense of an agency that is an occupying force that is also, it's pervasive. It's not something that um, can be extracted from the system easily exactly it's something that the whole of the political establishment is a sort of swamp um and that's something that it can be a particular narrative or an image that you find more on the right but that you'll find other narratives much like that just about any other um quarter of the um society and the political yes. spectrum so i think first of all we need to consider about what is it about American society and its system that allows for the growth of such distrust, because that's one of the first areas to actually think about mm -hmm. rectifying things. There's something collapsing here, or there's something that's never really been built up. So how would you develop the healthy networks of trust with which to counteract those things? So that more generalized context of distrust is, it's, something that seems to be more endemic to the system. Mm -hmm. um, and we can often think about, okay, you've got the system over here and you've got trust in another part that's exercised towards that or not exercised towards it. But there's something about the system itself that even within it, I think it's liable to that um, fostering of distrust. Um, yeah. So the question is, how could you overcome that? Um, 
within the system itself? How could we take agency to be those who actually create contexts where trust starts to develop? Now, it won't be developed perfectly or, or fully, mm -hmm. but I think that is important. Another thing is to recognize the degree to which um, trust can be mediated in very in relationships that are close to the ground. Mm -hmm. We tend to think in terms of the big government picture and the big agencies yeah. and how we relate to those. But often the relationship that we have to those is mediated by very specific relationships that we have to faces of those mm -hmm. organizations. So if you know someone who is working for um, some government agency, you can relate to that agency in part through their face and your relationship to them. And likewise, if you're relating to a particular area of academic expertise, mm -hmm. you don't actually need to know that area yourself to have a moderation of your distrust of that by knowledge of someone in your church, for instance, mm -hmm. who's within that area and who's an expert. And um, all of these things are some of the ways in which I think we can create healthier dynamics where there's not just that radical distrust and where those narratives are not just remove it's not simply that they evaporate and dissipate we recognize right. there are ideological forces there are structural factors there are all these sorts of things that do give some degree of purchase for a hermeneutic of suspicion and some degree of legitimacy for recognizing there are power interests here there are class interests here and things it's not a level playing field things are playing out in particular ways mm. um but at the same time recognizing we can break that distrust down to a more manageable size. We can see within this structure, it's not necessarily driven all, in most cases, it's driven by something a bit more complicated than mm. malice. It's something that is um, not necessarily a war of one party upon another. Mm. And there are ways in which you can see things from another perspective that enable you to understand where other people are coming from and then to actually move towards thinking about how much you take on board some of the concerns that other parties would have yes. without um, jumping to their ideological responses, but nonetheless giving them weight. And so my approach generally is to recognize that there are these factors of distrust that are encouraged by and endemic to the system itself. And there are factors that make that sense of distrust um, uh, and not, um, it, it's not an irrational um, mm. sense. In some cases it is, but in many cases, people are responding to something that's really there. There's a real breakdown of trust. There's, or trust isn't being built up. Mm -hmm. There's maybe not the trust to break down in the first place. Mm. And so the question is, how can you get a sense of the shape of that problem that is less generalizing, that thinks less, but let's, tear it all down, burn mm. it all down, mm. and thinks more about where is the healthy tissue here? Where is the yes. unhealthy um, stuff that needs to be excised? And then once you've done that, I think you can, you can have a more effective response that is not um, polarized, paralyzed, or um, paranoid. You know, that's, that's so helpful. And it relates, I've begun to wonder if 
what I will just loosely call institution building is not a form of resistance. And related to that, French, real, a real active uh, enterprise of friendship across as much of a spectrum as possible. Befriend, not necessarily in intimate friendships, but befriend as many people as you can, just so you can know, get to know what they know. Because the, the, the broader your knowledge is, the more I think it enables you to understand as you, I, I love that metaphor you just used of where's the healthy tissue? Because the alternative to getting involved in cultural building side by side with as many people as possible, as many people of goodwill and even people we fiercely disagree with, but through the course of conversations, we begin to understand something of what their actual interests are and, and how they analyze things and why they care about certain things so that we might be able to find some common ground. Like that's good social tissue. Can we work on that stuff? Because the alternative is, and I've said before, I'm more than mildly nervous about this. The alternative to that is to just engage in political war where you win an election, now we won the election. Then you took it back and now we're gonna take it back. And at the end of that, if there even is an end to that process, other than just total social disillusion, the best you can really hope for is we've grabbed the Oval Office for four years. Let's impose all we can during those four years until the enemies sweep in and you know tear it all down. Alistair, I just think that whole, I think that whole political program is nonsense. It, it doesn't, there is no future in that. I, I, I care about who's in office and what policies they're enacting, but if cultural hegemony, to use Gramsci's idea, is a thing, where has God given us local opportunities to participate in cultural building? Let's, let's build institutions and let's, I, and along with that, I have been, I have had so much anxiety calmed in me in the last decade by getting into networks of friends who have opened my understanding of how the world works. You know, they bring their sphere of knowledge and expertise and, and interest. And as I interact with that, I learn more about the world. I learn more about questions I didn't know existed before, or maybe ways of approaching questions I didn't know about before. And they've introduced me to books and podcasts and articles, and I've just much wider reading. I don't read and, and listen in a niche now the way I once, I didn't realize I was in a niche, but I was. And as, as my knowledge has expanded, it's enabled me to say about most political questions, you know, that's complicated stuff. There are a lot of really good questions, some very real problems there. We should, and I, I, I'm interested in what I might do about those in my particular situation. I mean, as a pastor, I'm able to have a measure of influence. And as a father, and, and I just, I'm thinking about learning more about the questions and, and possible solutions, and then looking at my context and seeking to be a good friend to other friends in other contexts where I might be able to encourage that brother or sister over there who's building that institution or, you know, has that platform for, for, for speech and, and influence. And this is, this is resistance. It's, it's just, it's refusing to be engaged in that, I, I really do think it's a posture of just war at, at this high political level, which I, I think can only be fruitless. I find this in, for instance, the, the line that you often hear, experts differ and experts do differ, but 
when you've got to a, a knowledge of a certain expertise around a particular question, you realize that they differ in ways where there are clear boundaries, yep. where there will be recognition, mutual recognition of expertise, recognition of where you're dealing with a crack, um, <laughs> that some positions, experts differ does not mean that all of those differences are expert differences. Um, right. And at a certain point, you realize you can actually take a less dogmatic position to a question mm. without mm. feeling that everything is up for grabs, mm. because there are a lot of things that have been narrowed down and you can see different perspectives upon the same question. And there is a sense of anxiety that gets lifted. Yes. Whereas people, I think, who often come to that from outside um, and it's always important to take those sort of instincts that you learn in your own areas. Um, for instance, knowing that you've been in so many situations where you've seen an, a local situation or something in your church or something in your family really close up. You know the different complexities of the various party interests, etc. And you see someone judging that from without and how badly they get it wrong. Um, and then you take that sort of instinct and you realize, okay, I'm going to be very careful in the way that I judge this situation from without because I've seen how that can go wrong in situations about which I have personal knowledge or I've seen how expertise functions within my discipline. Mm. I'm going to take the instincts that I learned there to apply to other disciplines. And in most areas, you'll find that the, expert, the experts, they differ, but they differ in intelligent ways. They recognize each other. Mm -hmm. They recognize which there's a certain sense of what is expertise, what is not expertise. Mm -hmm. And there are certain people who are just cranks who like to just dismiss everyone entirely mm -hmm. and put them all within a certain camp. And when you actually know the experts, they're not all within a single camp. There's a lot of differences right. within them, within their midst. And so it's being able to read those sorts of contexts. It enables you to break those um, levels of distrust down to size. It's not about suspicion anymore. You trust each other. You know that you're experts, but the differences are reasonable differences of perspective. And that movement from suspicion of persons to differing perspectives, I think, is a huge move to make. Another thing, just on your issue of construction, and this is, again, one of the reasons why we need to be working on creating the foundation within which we can act in a healthy mm -hmm. manner in mm -hmm. these situations when yes. things are going well. Um, yes. If we're going to function well in a crisis, we need to be dealing with things in the good times. And so I think one of the first areas would be how much is your church and your local community building healthy relationships of trust with local authorities. Mm. Um, so for instance, had, um, one guy who's talked about the fact whenever a new a local official comes into office, someone starts off as the new dean of the university, whatever it is, there is this um, concern to go to that person and say, how can we pray for you? Um, mm -hmm. What is something within your area of responsibility that no human being could solve, that we can pray for. And these sorts of, this sense, we're concerned we want the best for you. Mm. Um, mm. And so often what you have, I think, is this situation where we're instantly complaining to or distrusting authorities yeah. that we're not actually invested in them. Um, we've given them no reason to 
be invested in us. We're just people who complain. And there's no sense in which we're actually wanting to mm -hmm. give them a positive response. Mm -hmm. If they actually do things that are positive, we're not actually reacting to that. And so they'll um, end up just serving the interests of the people who do give them those sorts of responses. Right. But if we're people who are so invested in the local common good that we actually form those relationships and develop them, then when the time comes, when there is something that we're really concerned about and we need to deal with, mm. we have a hearing, we have trust, we have traction, mm -hmm. and we have the means by which to have a response to that that is not characterized by antagonism. And so for me, these, these are the sorts of areas where we need to work before that time of resistance so that when there is need for resistance, we can minimize the pressure that we'll need to exert. Yeah, that's, that's just excellent. I, there was, I have an interesting illustration of that from, uh, from 2020 uh, in a, I have a relative who's in a church in another city and it's an inner city church with a lot of people from minoritized cultures where they were, they were deeply affected by the George Floyd thing that went down in the summer of 2020. But the leadership in that church had already established a relationship with, with someone in the local police force. And so when that whole thing went down after George Floyd was killed, they, the leadership got on the phone with this, they had a Zoom meeting with this person in the police force and they were just able to talk through kind of how those local authorities viewed what was going on with the riots and, um, you know, the, this person in the police force was interacting with how these things would emotionally affect people in this particular congregation. And it was just a really, it was a really beautiful example of how a relationship that would have been automatically hostile if that preparatory work had not been done became instead communicative and, and mutually helpful in a very tense moment. But as you just said, I mean, if that groundwork is not laid in advance, and I think that's just sort of across the board in so many different contexts, if you are, if you are not strengthening relationships before they're put under stress, you can't expect them to respond well under stress. I mean, it's just so obvious, but re resistance gets very, it's, it's hard to work out resistance responsibly when you've already set things up to be so hostile and antagonistic because you haven't done you know, preparatory work and constructive work upstream. So I, I, think, I think we tend to think of resistance as what happens in the moment of crisis. And I think you're pointing out it's just so much more than that. I think also that preparatory work provides a context within which the resistance is seen for what it is. Hmm. Um, when resistance occurs, for instance, think about David. Um, David's resistance or his fleeing from King Saul and the, all the things that happen between Saul and David have a context of David's faithful service of Saul. The fact that whenever he was given the chance to take Saul's life, he did not yes. do so. And he blessed Saul. He wanted the best for him. He did not seek to be his enemy. And when you've seen all of that, everything else makes more sense. Um, and I think we see that more generally in scripture. If our primary political task as Christians is praying for authorities, um, because that's taking place in the context where we're actually um, engaging in our mm -hmm. primary political task, mm -hmm. we're engaging with the throne of God and we're seeking for the good of our society. We're seeking that good as it's represented and um, 
by flawed human beings in positions of rule. And once that is seen as the context, when there is a, a moment of resistance, it's seen against all this background of submission, honor, um, seeking the best, and it becomes clear what it is, that so, it is not just overthrowing the fifth commandment yes. and our duties towards superiors, but it's actually uh, an expression of our concern for the good. And it's something that is of one piece with mm. everything else that we've been practicing in our pursuit of a healthy common good, a society that is one of trust and mm. just functioning well. I, I have a very specific area where I maybe we could talk about applying what you just said. And that is just our speech about authorities in general. I, I don't know if this is just me, but I have gotten so weary, Alistair, of constant complaining about and criticizing of those in authority. <clears throat> Maybe because I've had to be a pastor now for 16 or so years, and I don't mind, you know, I don't mind criticism. You, you better expect it if you're going to be a pastor. But you, you, you listen better, to your point, you listen better to people who in general are obviously supportive and encouraging. And I mean, they're, they're invested. There's some buy-in. When those people speak criticism, it carries weight. But I just feel so often that evangelical Christians in America have often come across, I know this is broad brush, but have often come across as just very shrill, very annoyed, very ready to, they do, there's not a covering of the faults of authorities. I, I have, there, there are certain people in my social media feeds. Now, these are intelligent Christians. Just about everything they post is anti this or that administration, anti, I mean, through, through the COVID time, I mean, it just got, it gets to be exhausting. Like, do you ever do anything besides find like the most embarrassing Kamala Harris, you know, video clip and post it for the world to mock? I mean, is that, what are we even doing with that? Because after a while, I, who know you and actually respect you, don't want to hear anything you have to say politically. I can't imagine how people who don't know you and don't have any context for respecting you, how the, the only thing you're doing at that point, it seems to me, is whipping up your own little tribe who kind of hate this or that authority as much as you do, that is, a, that is not a rhetorical posture from which you can speak with authority to authority. Because as you just pointed out, there's no evidence of genuine goodwill and seeking to see the best, putting a, putting a charitable spin as much as you can on things. Because then when you need to say the word of this is an injustice, you know, back to the civil rights context, it was in part the honorable manner in which those protesters in general behaved toward the authorities that enabled what they did to have so much power. Revolutionaries very quickly burned through their, their, their capital politically and rhetorically, because you can only scream outrage so long before people are just sort of, they're dulled to it. And it's almost impossible to build a functional authority on that basis. Um, Indeed. Again, as we discussed a couple of conversations ago, had David just taken that position of direct confrontation and resistance mm. to Saul, comprehensive resistance, he could not have built his own reign on that basis. 
Um, exactly. The, the one verse that really comes to mind here is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Mm. And I think there's a lot to reflect upon there, not just mm. for our, um, our church authorities. Yep. It's definitely important there. Having been the son of a pastor, you realize the amount of misery that <laughs> churches can put their pastors through. And I'm sure you know this firsthand, this no the amount that people just presume upon sure. the emotional burden that pastors can take and the groaning that occurs as part of that task is in, incredible. And you think about that for politicians as well. They also mm. have to give an account of their rule. They are also ministers of Christ bearing the sword. And our desire should be that they exercise that well and without groaning. We, we're on the side of good order. And we're on the side of those who are exercising authority in Christ's name. And as much as possible, we want to build up a good authority. And so any way in which we can lean into their support, their authority, build mm -hmm. it up and honor it. Um, but focus on the good things. Yes. And then with that capital that we built there, deal with the dysfunctions. It's like a house that has some structural huge stru structural faults you'll have to have braces and other supports on those areas that are able to hold something up if you're going to deal with those areas that need to be broken down mm. and so as much as mm. possible we're trying to create those braces um, for authority where we see it functioning well where we see people trying to exercise goodwill even if they have a misunderstanding yeah. We're doing whatever we can to lean into those areas in order that we can actually deal with the areas where there are dysfunctions. And again, yes. I've, I'm reminded of a, a piece that Scott Alexander talked about, and he talked about free speech. And the way in which we tend to think about free speech without considering the capital with which free speech operates. Free yes. speech is not entirely free. Yes. To actually tell, speak your mind and be candid you have to have earned a lot of trust and mm. goodwill with people. And so the ability to have a society of free speech is, in large part, it's on the basis of a society of trust and goodwill, yeah. where you've invested in each other, where you've sought a common good with others. And then at that point, you have gained the capital with which, when you speak with candor on an issue of concern, you may be heard because people know that it's not out of antagonism to them. It's not just about your private or your polarized party interests. There is a sense, we're saying this because we believe something about the common good is at stake. Yes. And this is not just to reject or dismiss or to um, throw you away as a neighbor. We actually love you and we're expressing this in a way consistent with all of that. And there are always ways to be working that out where you are and, and 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 you know as we've said a number of times throughout these episodes I, I think that's another good reason to probably limit social media advocacy it, it just does not have it doesn't lend itself toward the dynamics of what of what you've just been describing of building capital with you know with people who with, with whom your life has enough contact that they can they can they can get a sense that you're invested in in in, in their well being and in the well being of other people, um, 
you know, it's been interesting over the years. I've had some local friends with whom I, I have enormous, say, political differences. But it's been odd how much that doesn't really matter because it's just not, we, we have conversations about it, but it's not what defines our friendship at all. And <clears throat> so I think just live up, live them up. I mean, it sounds, it sounds so almost put, put your head in the sand is what you're saying, but it's just live where God has put you. Live with your people. And make make it known by your words and deeds that you are you are for them. And I think just... there's something that puts people off their guard when you actually are prepared to show trust yes. towards them. As someone who clearly holds different political opinions from them and who mm-hmm. has um, Christian commitments that would be at odds with their secular mm-hmm. values, the fact that nonetheless you're actually willing to believe that they are a person of goodwill and that there is a basis for common action um they're just not expecting that mm-hmm. which is tragic in itself but i do think that there is a lot of potential here that just has not been explored in many cases and so in the same way i think um we've talked about the importance of authorities building trust and earning or earning trust from others by giving reasons and trying to explain things and bring people to a position where it's very clear that the authorities want their good. There has to be action on both sides, ideally, um, a willingness to give trust, a willingness to um, be persuaded, yep. and a willingness to engage with people that have differences with us in a hopeful manner. We believe yes. that God can bring things about, even with our adversaries, God can cause the enemies of a righteous man to be at peace with him. And that is something about, I think, a hopeful Christian engagement that is not explored enough. Now, I think we do need to get into some of the more specific questions of, okay, we've done all of those things. We've taken the right approach. And nonetheless, we're being forced into something that's clearly unjust or um, we're having some pressure put upon us in a way that clearly goes contrary to our faith. What now? Um, Yep. (laughs) <laughs> I I was thinking the same. I mean, what about situations where government regulations that affect worship, let's say, or you're in a situation where in an employment context, this happened a lot during COVID, where you have a principled view about, let's say, vaccines, and yet you're going to lose your job if you don't get vaccinated, these kinds of situations. How, how do we and this might be a perhaps a whole other conversation, but just how do you think about maybe the jurisdictional lines there and how you how you respond as an individual within those jurisdictional uh, contexts and, and in some cases conflicts, like perhaps between something that the state is saying and 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 the church being affected by that and those sorts of things. Um, I've spent a lot of time, honestly over the last couple of years, just trying to clear up some confusion for, for people about um, where they're, sometimes we can create a situation where we feel a need for resistance and we've actually misdefined the situation. There's really not a need for resistance. For example, the fact that in general, the fact that a government uh, agency or actor would um, impose public health regulations, you know, during a time of public health crisis that's not an infringement of conscience. That's a way of protecting people's bodies in public gatherings of bodies. And I don't think that churches can 
I really don't think that churches can just wave some kind of jurisdictional card to say we're exempt from all of that any more than we're exempt from any other regulations that are clearly just protecting people's health and safety um, or, or even, I mean, this is the kind of thing you get into where it's not an act of resistance for um, a family to refuse to report something, an abuse situation that's happened because this is a family affair and, and we're like resistant to CPS being called in or, or resistant to, to government actors being brought in to investigate. Well, that's just, a, in, in my judgment, that's just a confusion about jurisdictions. That's not a context in, in which resistance is even really an issue because these are government actors doing something that's entirely within their jurisdiction to do. So sometimes I think we can create resistance questions where some clear jurisdictional understanding would probably make them disappear. And then I think there is the the ways in which we can de-escalate a situation or break it down to a mm-hmm. more manageable size. There are occasions where we have onerous restrictions mm-hmm. um, and there's a certain degree of creativity and yep. imagination that enables us to circumvent without destroying the spirit of the law but to get around some of the more onerous restrictions yep. and so in those sorts of cases we have a number of different things that we can do to respond which don't instantly involve re- jumping to resistance so it's first of all consider what options we have and ideally what we've tried to do is to create a significant repertoire of responses Mm -hmm. so we can respond by appealing to authorities that we've developed goodwill with Mm -hmm. and significant capital and so when we do raise our concerns they're going to give us a hearing they know we're not just doing this out of an instinctive hostility Um, and then that point where okay we can't get around these um the restrictions are going to apply to us, but what is a creative or imaginative way that we could continue to do yeah. certain practices without falling foul of this? Right. Then also thinking about ways in which we can um, think about the application of the law. Um, there are, I mean, I think this is an interesting, there are interesting examples of this in scripture. So for instance, the story of Esther and Haman and the law that's made to kill the Jews. That law is never excised from the books. Mm -hmm. That law remains on the books. But what happens is a competing law comes against it and goes toe to toe. um, And it's so extreme that um, people know, okay, there's a signal being given. We're going to disregard that first law. And so there's a sort of epigenome behind the genome of the law that determines when certain laws are going to be activated or not. Yeah. And often I think you'll find the same thing with local authorities. There are ways in which there is this sort of epigenome of how laws mm-hmm. are applied. Mm-hmm. And the same thing if you have your boss. Ideally, you want to have good will with your boss so that when your um, a crisis arises, um, for instance, HR has this new policy on um, LGBTQ yeah. stuff and... Yeah. How are you going to stand with regard to that? You're not going to sign up. But is there some way that you can make some under- arrive at some understanding with them, having developed goodwill, um, where you say, okay, I'm not in this situation to engage in hate speech. I'm not wanting to be hostile towards people. I have mm-hmm. these clear convictions. This is how I hold these convictions. Mm-hmm. And I hold them in a way that um, I 
aim to be loving to my neighbors and and I have a track record of this this is the way that I've acted in these situations before and when people see that often you'll find there are ways in which the burden of the law can be diminished or yeah. there can be circumvent people will find ways to circumvent it or they'll find other um, ways of avoiding subjecting you to the full force so again we're dealing with situations none of these are is a silver bullet mm -hmm. but what we're looking at what are the avenues of escape that might be provided to us before we go for the more extreme options and yeah. there are many of those avenues that we don't want to miss and we want to make sure that early on we provide ourselves with these so if you're working in a workplace where you might have this sort of legislation coming in ideally you want to have these good relationships that give you the capital with which to yes. work and you'll find that those you'll often have situations where people will make allowances in those sorts of mm -hmm. um, scenarios. Yeah, we actually had an interesting situation along those lines with our landlord during the, the COVID situation. So we, we, um, we, did not, we were not able to be in our church building. We rent a, a church facility from a Lutheran church. We weren't able to be in the facility for a number of months, but we paid rent all during that time, just as a gesture of goodwill to our landlord, because we knew that you know, they, they can use the money. And then when we came back into the building, they had to check certain boxes of what they required in order to have public meetings going on in their building. But they were very, very hands off with us of basically we're stating what our policy is, but what you do in your worship service is up to you. And I, I speculate about whether there was some correlation between the fact that we had taken good care of them financially during the months when we couldn't be renting actively from them. And then they were very gracious with us and giving us some room to to. To, to, to maneuver on, you know, the, some of the policies in the building uh, later. Um, and, and I think what maybe the flip side of what you're saying is what we are absolutely not doing is establishing this provocative stance. I, I think sometimes resistance movements are almost hoping for a, for a clash with the authorities. I mean, you, you, you see this in protests where the point of showing up at this protest is to get arrested. And if you don't show up on the news as being arrested, then the protest wasn't didn't have the rhetorical force that you wanted. That to me is just something that kind of spectacle, that sort of grandstanding is at the other end of the spectrum from what you're describing, which is we're, we're seeking every opportunity to be in a cooperative mode with authorities. Now, there might come a point when you just can't obey Jesus anymore and be, yep. and be obedient to this authority. And those times may come and then courage is needed. But to not have at least a mentality that's looking for every opportunity to not have it come to that seems to me one wonders then what what's the end you're seeking. I think the distinction that you make there between the sort of high handed and provocative conflict seeking resistance and the sort of ways of circumventing or um, or technically complying, but um, recognizing, mm -hmm. OK, we're going to go no further than we really have to with yeah. these onerous laws. We're going to find ways around them. We're going to be creative and imaginative, but we are not going to have a high-handed showdown with the law. I mean, it's like exactly. a situation of speeding. Um, most people have sped at certain points in their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a difference between doing that accidentally or doing it in a situation where, okay, you need to get to the hospital quickly mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. some reason, for instance. Those sorts of things are understandable and within 
the law makes allowances for that. Right. What the law does not allow for is the sort of high-handed, I'm going to speed in this area to have a showdown with the law, right. to see if the law will actually respond. It's like the, um, again, it's the child that wants to test the parent's boundaries and mm-hmm. directly doing that, mm-hmm. rather than the child that fails in some, maybe they they forgot to take their uh, muddy shoes off and they're walking through the house right. and their parents told them not to do that. Okay, they've made a mistake. You deal with that in a very different way from the child that's just stubbornly refusing yeah. to remove their shoes and just tromping through the house, trying to make as much of a mess as they can. There is a very different sort of approach <laughs> yeah. to the law in those cases. Yeah. And I think we have, this is one of the problems I think that we have with um, the sort of COVID situation um, leads to a situation where there are lots of these different potentials for showdowns. Lots yeah. of these different cases where there are um, vague laws that being applied in inconsistent ways where the government becomes like it's a sort of extension of a a sort of large TSA um, (laughs) where there are all sorts of different ways in which its authority is diminished because its authority is not being evenly enforced. Yes. There are ways in which it just could not enforce its authority effectively. And so a lot depends upon how people respond to the spirit of the law in that situation. Are they seeking showdowns with the law or are they trying to uphold the law as much as possible while recognizing, okay, these, there can be limits to the ways that these apply. I can recognize in my situation that, okay, um, maybe there are ways that I'm going to find as many Mm -hmm. (laughs) ways to avoid having my um, kids masked as Mm -hmm. possible Mm -hmm. um, because I just don't think that's good for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to make sure that if there's any way, I'm not wanting to break the law as much as possible. I'm wanting to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And where there are situations where suppose I feel that I must break the law, I don't want to show down about it. I don't want to have a high-handed resistance to the law, um, but I'm going to do the absolute most that I can to avoid that sort of situation and show my respect for the law um, while saying, okay, this is a point to which I cannot go. Um, I think you'll find the same thing in in many situations in schools, for instance, Mm. where... yeah if you have a very healthy relationship with your kids' teachers, when you're resisting their position on teaching them about um, certain issues of um, sexual education, they will be a bit more receptive to what you're Mm -hmm. saying because you're supporting their authority wherever you can. Mm -hmm. And on this particular issue, you're you're wanting to avoid as much as possible to have having a fight. Um, But you do... You're petitioning them first. Is there some way that we can avoid this situation? Because I want to support your authority. I don't want to clash with it. Is there some way that you can make an allowance? Um, yeah. And then well, thinking maybe if they're not going to be receptive to that, is there some way I can work around this? Take my kid out of school on these yeah. particular days. And it takes creativity. At some points, you may have to come to a more direct confrontation. But having mm-hmm. taken all those steps... First of all, that confrontation is seen for what it is. This is not something that was precipitous. This is not something that's just about being provocative, but it's a responsibly 
um, engaged in form of focused resistance to an authority that nonetheless you want to affirm as much as possible. But you can see there again, that's just excellent stuff. And, and I, but you can see there again how something we said in the last episode about narrative framing kind of sets you up for one or the other. Because what you're describing there is the kind of principled questions and challenges to things that are being said or imposed where, but, but, but within an overall affirmation of the good of, you know, the social order within your op, within which you're operating, as opposed to this kind of deep, deep acidic hermeneutics of suspicion toward the, toward the, that delegitimizes the whole thing because I mean take take the COVID regulations for example I mean perhaps you and I could stipulate that much of what went on from from governments uh, in 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 imposing policies about COVID I mean it, a lot of it came off as very oafish and clumsy and bureaucratic and you know ham fisted and but I heard totally different rhetoric from people who could see all of that and started looking for creative ways to say let's maneuver within this and basically act with as much freedom as we possibly can without brazenly defying the authorities. You know, I certainly did uh, as a parent and pastor versus that idea that the COVID regulations were one example of this occupying force. And so every COVID regulation then became like an opportunity to further, I mean, I'm not sure how to put this, but like, make an obscene gesture at the man. And I heard Christian pastors speaking like this, like to the point where if you were not willing to have that kind of brazen spectacle, you know, rise to challenge these, you know, malevolent forces that are, you know, of biotechnocracy, you were complicit with them. You know, you're not being a good shepherd because you're not thundering against this stuff the, and, and I it just it was it was amazing to me, like once you questioned the underlying narrative of that kind of brazen challenge, it just started to look kind of silly. Like these are complicated times. Public health crises, first of all, it wasn't all that well anticipated. And then people are scrambling at the highest levels down to the lowest levels of how to respond to it. So a lot of patience is needed. There's going to be a lot of stupid stuff that's handed down. We're going to have to deal with. But is and really... we've not had the experience of dealing with something like this before. So of the science is always going to be developing and, and public authorities are not necessarily competent at the best of times. Um, so, is, so is this the moment to stage the great, you know, standoff with you know, whatever this thing is you, you've dreamed up as kind of like the monster enemy? It just seemed like a very inopportune moment for that kind of brazen challenge. And, and I, the whole narrative is just in some ways so... So many things got lumped into this overarching. I mean, look, I think there is a real danger of biotechnocratic yep. control. I, I'm very awake to that. This just seemed like an awfully poor time to stage the great coup. <laughs> I think the concern is, I mean, I have many of those concerns about biopolitics and biopower. Um, those concerns are not irrational concerns in a time no. like ours. And it, it will not be, however for the most part, a matter of um, malicious forces directly trying to move us in that direction. It would be more a matter of sleepwalking into this. Um, <laughs> that We're just not alert to the fact that these dangers lie on the other side. We've become so fixated upon this immediate threat that faces us mm -hmm. that we're making all 
taking all of these risks in this other area. Um, and so yeah. that is a, a genuine concern. And there are, there are, I think, it's important to raise that concern, to articulate it, and actually to think about how we might deal with that without, on the other hand, just dismissing these other concerns that would seem to countervail it. And that's one of the, the dangers that we, ha we have with big narratives. When you have these big narratives, heroes and villains, and that sort of tidy narrative framing, it's difficult to recognize just the complexity and the um, just the entangled and choices that people have to make in situations where there's little information that's clear and accessible to them. They're going to have to make decisions that are imperfect and somehow we have to work with that. And so being able to address the dangers speak clearly about the dangers without actually taking a polarized view to it, yes. I think is important in those sorts of scenarios. I think the other thing that we, we have in these situations is the ability to have different levels of resistance mm. enables us to <laughs> recognize where we have resources that we might not otherwise have recognized. Mm. Because if you've got a big narrative and everyone's within this particular group is malicious, you'll often fail to recognize that many people within that group will share some of your concerns Absolutely. if you voice them in the right way. Yes. And so I, I think, for instance, of occasions within scripture where you have complicated relationships within oppressive parties. Mm. Think about the relationship between Elijah and Ahab being moderated in part by the presence of Obadiah. Mm -hmm. Or think about the way that um, the oppression of the law concerning the um, worshipping um, King Darius mm -hmm. for 30 days is moderated by the fact that King Darius is actually a friend of Daniel. Yes. And there are ways of working with that uh, in the same way you might think about the, um, the relationship between Mordecai and Ahasuerus, that mm -hmm. Ahasuerus makes this terrible decree mm. But recognizing the different parties involved and the ways that Esther actually has the ear of the king and Mordecai can actually end up making this law that, I mean, the last chapter of Esther is a surprising one. It's about tax policy. And you realize <laughs> this tax policy is actually the answer to the, one of the problems that you have earlier on that led to the destruction yes. of the Jews because the, the attempt to destroy the Jews was presented as a a sort of fiscal policy, a sort of mm. plunderous fiscal policy. Mm. And what's the alternative to that? A good tax policy. And <laughs> when you recognize that you can actually deal with many of these things within the system, yes. that there are laws, there are, um, there are structures and institutions, there are um, allies, there are um, alliances to be formed, then you're not in that instinctive position and posture of resistance you're recognizing, okay, there's actually a lot that we can do once yeah. we know what's going on on the ground. Once we know that these concerns that I have, for instance, about biopolitics are shared by many, even within government itself. And maybe I need to think of ways in which I can support those forces and maybe um, be someone who speaks in a way that having lowered the... <laughs> the tone, having lowered the um, sort of fiery antagonism yeah. can actually receive a hearing from people who might otherwise 
um, have instinctively taken a posture of resistance to me because they presumed that I was taking a posture of resistance to them when yeah. there could be an alliance made. Yeah, I, that's that's just so helpful. I mean, and I was just thinking as you were describing some of those Old Testament examples, how much of Jesus' ministry and the early church's ministry had pretty cordial relations with Romans, the, the Roman soldiery, you know, centurions and so on. I mean, how often Paul benefited from friendship with, or at least cordial relations with Roman officials and and even family relationships yeah um, I, I think yeah. the other thing is seeing the way paul is able to be shrewd and cunning in the way that he uses rivalries within mm -hmm. political authorities <laughs> so the way that yes. he addresses the sanhedrin and sets the, uh, yes. the sadducees and the pharisees against each other he's a troll but <laughs> he actually it's very it's very effective and he also is able to I mean, we also recognize, for instance, there is the fact that the, um, the Sanhedrin sentenced Christ to death, but there's also Nicodemus in there. Mm -hmm. And there's Joseph of Arimathea. And the, there are these other agencies at work that make the picture more complex. Even Gamaliel. Um, yes. And it is, um, once you look more closely... I think this is also one of the reasons why the more close you get to people who are working within these institutions, who are ex relevant experts, who are authorities, um, the more you realize they actually don't fit the narrative, yeah. the big yeah. um, suspicious narratives. Yes. But they do give us a sense okay, there are these malicious, for there are these negative forces at the very least. Often you'll find there is some hostility or mal malice there. Mm. And yet there are points of traction within the system that yes. they can be dealt with. And there, I think also it, you find again and again that Christian organizations are helped by a knowledge and proficiency in the law. Mm. Um, knowing mm. um, people who are legal experts, yep. who have advoc having advocates who are presenting cases for Christian freedoms. Yes. That is so important within Absolutely. every country support organizations that are trying to address laws that are coming on the books and um, try to create um, ways in which churches can respond and mm -hmm. um, increase knowledge of the law by the people who have to navigate it most. And all of that is something that we have at our disposal, but it requires a bit of wisdom. We yes. have to be wise like serpents. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely agreed about legal advocacy, because they will also, people that are trained in that will also go to tell you what your options are not, keep you away from the crazy stuff. You know, this is, this is, this is what the law provides. Let's work within actually systems that on balance often function pretty well. For every story you hear about crazy abuses, on balance, these systems of laws provide so much help and support and infrastructure. And one other quick comment I would just make would be, I think it's also good to just keep reading a lot of history because the more you see how people have worked these things out in historical contexts where, you know, I've wanted to tell people in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of rulers in history who were just thugs. If you disagreed with them, they would just take off your head. We should thank God for the times we live in. It's fairly peaceful, really. <laughs> Our oppression that we suffer is relatively mild and it just gives you some perspective and, and gives you some 
some examples of the kinds of serpentine wisdom you've been describing of how to maneuver within tough times. You know, you got John Calvin out there in his cave administering a Lord's Supper in France. You know, it's good stuff to read about. So <laughs> I'm reminded of that um, quote from A Man for All Seasons. Um, so now you give the devil the benefit of law. Uh, yes. What would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh, and when that last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, mm. I'd give the Lord, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. And so I think Christians have lots <laughs> of these resources yeah. that we need to work with. Um, and yes. if we end up resisting them, we'll actually find ourselves poorer off, particularly within countries like the US and the UK, where there has been this long legacy mm. of Christian Christians involved in the law seeking to develop a legal structure that's, that maintains Christian freedoms and goods within mm. society. There's a lot to work with there. And so as much as possible, we should become adept at doing so. And when we do come to positions of resistance, I think often we'll find that we can take stands of resistance on the grounds of law. And mm -hmm. um, I think you see that in the civil rights movement. I think you also see it in some of the healthy forms of resistance to COVID excesses. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. where people have actually said, okay, let's deal with this in the courts. Yes. Because we actually have means there to actually attack these abuses without actually overthrowing authority. We're appealing to authority as a means to address its own abuses. And there, I think, we'll often find ourselves with the resources that would spare us from having to take a more antagonistic response. And preserve the social order. And that's just something that I think people on the right and the left just so very much need to hear. Very much agreed.